How many of you believe that the best decision you ever made was to bend your knee before the Lord Almighty? Amen. All right. Uh, listen, you're going to hear today about the way that God helps us fight our battles in a whole new light. The Bible is going to just show us sort of a whole layer to that. I don't know what you think of when you sing that lyric, uh, but I, I hope it's tainted. I hope it's shaded and looked through the lens of what we talk about um, in Romans this week. Uh, I want to invite you to pull out your phones and play with your phones in church, okay? Uh, this is a new technique to kind of get people to stay at church. They get to play with phones in church. Uh, parents, you better still check with mom and dad on that because we believe in the priesthood of all believers and they're the ones who get final say. Um, I want to have you, if you would like to participate uh, in, a, in a live poll, we're going to look at the results from this service in just a moment. And if you're confused by this, I'm older, I didn't grow up with uh, this stuff. Some of you get this right away, but you're texting to the number 22333. That's the phone number you're texting to. And what you are texting to join this poll is NBC072. So if you would like to, if you're listening to the podcast, you can't play because you're hearing this after the fact. It's not life. But if you would like to, you can go ahead and text in your answer to this question, which is the Great Commission? So one of these sets of verses refers to the Great Commission. Um, so I'd like you to go ahead and text in your answer. We're going to look at that in just a second. Uh, if you're new with us, if you have a prayer request, if you want to get involved in ministry, uh, not only do we provide a way to do that online, we provide it right here in service, and we give you a free pen to write it down with. I see these pens in all of your homes all the time. It cracks me up. Uh, I was just in a home of someone, and, and they're like, oh, there's an... And they said sheepishly, oh, you could use this pen. I'm like, don't worry. I steal them too. So we're a people in process. We're working, the, we're working it through. Um, so go ahead and uh, take that, and then uh, do it quick, because we're going to have you turn those into uh, the offering, which is being taken uh, just now. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, we invite you and welcome you to this place, and God, for many of us in this room, you are the very center of our lives. We've come to understand and know and believe and take great security in the reality that you are in and through every, everything, and God, that we exist for you. God, I pray that uh, you would show us that, comfort us, instruct us, rebuke us where we're going off-center, God, and I pray that just now, even as we worship um, God, by engaging in song, worship, by giving of, uh, of our money, God, that it would be used uh, by the leaders and decision makers of this church in a way that would, they would humbly reflect uh, faithful stewardship. And God, for those giving, Lord, that they would be generous, that they would be faith-filled as they give it. God, that it would be an act of joyful worship. I know some have already done this online because they do it right when they get paid. And God, I pray that it wouldn't be just mere religious duty that we do this, God, but it would be an act of worship. God, as we sing right now, engage our hearts and minds in a special way. In Jesus' name. Uh, go ahead and open your Bible up to Romans 15, which is where we're going to be. I know this went pretty quick. Kids are dismissed as well right now. That didn't happen. So middle schoolers leave, children leave. We love both of you a lot. I'm going to put this slide back up in case you didn't get to participate. Did I mention that this is an anonymous poll? That's going to invite more of you to participate because you're thinking, if I get this wrong, pastor's going to come to my house with an intensive Bible study and a tongue lashing. Not really the vibe of our church, not what this is about, uh, so it is anonymous. Um, so Romans 15 is where we are going to be this morning. And if I say these words, 
or if I remind you that Rome wasn't built in a day, what might I be saying to you? What's the message I'm trying to communicate? Now, this is not, don't text me, just really answer out loud right now. What am I trying to say if I say Rome wasn't built in a day? What's the messaging? It takes a while to build big things, right? What else, maybe? Gria nailed it. Patience. Man, we, that's why he sits in the front row. What? It's a process, right? Yeah, so you would be reminding someone, stick with it. It's a process. Great things take time. Those are the messages that we get with Rome wasn't built in a day. There goes the slide. If you didn't participate yet, too bad. Um, today, I want to I show you some things. Uh, and and uh, these aren't in your notes, but these are just sort of some, some high-level uh, pictures from, from the text. Number one is that active remembering is key uh, to a well-lived life. Earlier in Romans 15, the reason we are opening our Bibles, the Bible makes claims about itself. And Paul says in Romans 15, earlier in this chapter, that the things that were written beforehand are there for our encouragement. They're there for our endurance. That we read these stories, and the God of hope that we heard about last week, it keeps us going. So we read the past, we remember for the very sake of being encouraged uh, to press on. It's why we come and gather on Sundays, isn't it? It's why we celebrate communion. It's that we actively remember. It's something that we build into our lives. The word remember or reminding is right in our text today. Paul is reminding these Roman Christians because he loves them and cares for them. Secondly is that Paul's life of persevering passion uh, created remarkable results. You're going to see from the text, and, and we, could, we could sort of go back and track all this in the book of Acts where it's, where it's recorded, but his life of perseverance created incredible things. Paul stuck with it. Great things take time. Finally, you're going to see that the Great Commission still matters, and the implications, when you think out what the implications of the Great Commission are, it really motivates us. Think about this for a second. You are here sitting in church singing to a risen Savior in great part because Paul finished the job that he was given to do. Paul remained faithful to do what he was told to do. What was he? He was the apostle to the Gentiles. What are most of you Gentiles? If you are non-Jewish, you're a Gentile. So literally, we can trace back our, like why we're sitting in a church today to Paul's activity in the Great Commission. We've called this series in Romans Colossal Truth because these are big, weighty truths that are absolute. That means they apply to all people everywhere for all of time. And there are some truths that you hear that land on you that once you have them, there is a responsibility that comes with it. You think about the idea if you, if you were handed the cure to some disease. That there's a responsibility to share that information so that those suffering from that disease can discover the cure as well. The Great Commission still matters. I created this poll because I saw something come through my inbox this week, and it was this, that George Barna, who has a research institute, conducted a survey of 1,000 United States church attenders in October of 2017, and he asked this question, have you heard of the Great Commission? And these are the results. 6% were not sure. 17% said yes, and it means 
25% said, yeah, but I can't tell you exactly where it is or what exactly it is. And a full 51% flatly answered, no, haven't heard of the Great Commission. Catch this, these are churchgoers. And they didn't know what the Great Commission was. That was disturbing to me. Now, I thought, since we have the word Bible built into our name, that we as a church would fare better. And the results are in. At least for this service, the results are in. So I'm going to look at it. Uh, I'm going to hit refresh one more time so we have it absolutely up up to date. Um, And to make it fair, what I did was this. I actually asked you the question um, in 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 a little bit of a different way. Uh, and it was more like this. And he asked this question as well. Now, you don't, you don't have to be able to read that. But here are the results. I have 22 of you that responded. And so this is a, this is a poll size of 22 in the room this morning. And, um, and here are the results. Um, a, the A answer was 13% of you. That was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's 13%. Uh, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, had one answer. Uh, Take up your cross and follow me is also incorrect. That had uh, zero answers. And it looks like one person answered E, I'm the way, the truth, and life. The correct answer is this, go and make disciples. It's Jesus sort of at the end of his, his, his time here on earth, and he's giving what's called the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You ready for this? 78% of you got that right. Yeah! Man, I asked Frank how he was doing this morning. He said 4.1. I told him he was an overachiever. You guys are overachievers. Man, that's, that's exciting, really. Um, why is this sport? Now, there could be all kinds of reasons, right? We use the word Great Commission in this church. We talk about it regularly. We say that exact phrase. We refer to go and make disciples because we see that as an important uh, part of our lives as Christian. Here's why this is, this is important. There is a growing number of Christians in America that believe it's not necessary to share their faith, to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, there's a segment of Christians who would identify themselves as born-again, Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians that not only say it's not necessary to go and make disciples, but it's actually immoral to to go and share the gospel, that it's something that's wrong to do. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. We're studying an ancient document, and if you go back sort of to ancient times, you realize this as you study history, and you don't need to think the Bible is inspired to to, to do this. This is is bought into by those who do rigorous study of ancient times, and that is this, that Christianity brought on a radical new teaching that went something like this. All people are absolutely and equally valuable. This cut totally against the grain of the day. That means that if you were slave or if you were free, educated, uneducated, male or female, if you were a human being, you had intrinsic value and dignity and worth simply for the fact that you were created in God's image. Now just compare that to Plato, who who valued people according to their behavior, And Aristotle, who once wrote that um, some men are slaves by nature, sort of the caste system, that you're sort of born into certain roles in life. I wonder if this idea that all people are equally valuable, which is written into our founding father's documents, right? 
And I wonder if we've made the jump from all people are equally valuable to this, that all ideas are equally valuable. We live in what's called a pluralistic society, and that is that there's not a theocracy, there's not a a law given as to what the right religion is, what you're supposed to believe about the afterlife, about your soul, about morality, and, and those sorts of things. I think it's an incredible opportunity to be a Christian in this valley. Absolutely incredible. Because on any given day, you can meet Buddhists and Muslims and Mormons and, and those who you know, have all kinds of different labels on them and all kinds of different worldviews. There's a problem with this idea, though, that all ideas are equally valuable. And every one of you experiences this and goes through a thought process when you go to buy a used car and you walk on a used car lot and someone says, hi, I'm Bob. And he comes to shake your hand, right? Right there, there's something that's going on in your brain that says, you know, if everything that this man says is true about this car, it really is a good deal. But you're asking, is it true? Right? Is it true? And that's how you ought to view all religion. That's how you ought to view everyone who talks about the afterlife, who talks about God. Is it true? So the problem with all people being equally, equally valuable and all ideas being equally valuable is this, that truth doesn't work like that. Truth doesn't bend to popularity. It doesn't, it doesn't bend with polls, right? It doesn't bend with our personal preference. As much as we try to make it bend with our personal preference, truth doesn't do that. It is unbending. If you were to pick one word, I've had time to think about this, so I'll share with you mine, but let me just put this out to you. If you were to pick one word to describe the moral climate of the United States of America, what would you pick? Don't say it out loud. Just think about it for a second. What is the moral condition? What is the moral climate that we sort of, sort of the air we breathe? And think about media outlets and what kind of gets fed to us and what people are talking about. Let me put this word out to you for a suggestion. How about confused? I think confused is a, is a really good word that sort of encapsulates a lot of what I hear, at least. Here's something that I hear regularly, and this applies directly to those of you who are, are thinking about the Great Commission and what is its role in our lives today. Here it goes something like this. It's wrong to force your beliefs on others. Raise your hand if you've heard someone say that to you in a conversation. It's wrong to force your beliefs on another. Now, let me just show you sort of the confusion of this. This is a really popular common thing, and it is meant to shut down sometimes a conversation about Christianity and Jesus. It's wrong to force your beliefs on others. Now, here's how you can playfully or forcefully answer that, depending on the circumstance. I always go towards playful to keep the conversation light. But I might answer that person, do you really believe that? And they go, yes, I do. I go, wait a minute, are you trying to get me to believe that? Huh. So your belief is that it's wrong to force your beliefs on anyone, and you believe that, and you want me to believe that. Do you see that? It's, it should be a fair exchange of ideas, that I believe these things. Let's have, a, let's have a discourse about it. Let's talk about it. Let's see what proofs there are. Let's see how our ideas stack up. And instead, sort of meant to shut down sometimes uh, someone sharing their faith, is it's wrong to force your beliefs on other people. Often said red-faced and angry. Morally confused. 
In an effort to avoid appearances of Western cultural imperialism, where we come and do some of the atrocities in our history, think the Native Americans and the broken treaties that we've done over the centuries here. So in an effort to distance ourselves from that, oftentimes we say this, we shouldn't pass judgment on other cultures. You ever heard that before? Well, that's what we believe, but we shouldn't pass judgment on other cultures. It sounds so tolerant, it sounds so merciful, until... A nation is found persecuting women simply for being women. And then what happens? There's utter outrage. Until a nation decides it's illegal to practice homosexuality. Now there's marching in the streets and boycotts of Olympics and things like that that say, no, 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 that that can't be right. Until a nation is found to use chemical warfare on their citizens, people shout in mass, that's wrong. But here's the challenge. Many in America have no basis for that. They say unequivocally it's wrong to use chemical warfare on your innocent citizens, but I have no basis to really tell you compared to what? Like as what is my foundation? I bring all of this up because I want to say this point. God has not left us without the ability to discern right from wrong. That's a double negative. So that means he's positively stated he has left us a witness to discern right from wrong. The Bible is written down because God thinks it's so important to tell how to live in this life that he wrote it down. Immediately people say, what about those who don't have the law, who don't have it written down? God thought it was so important that even for those who don't yet have a Bible, it's written on their hearts. It's called the conscience. So God wrote it in two different places. When we read the Bible and our eyes are open to it, what's written on our hearts is is confirmed by what's written down in the scriptures. And many of you have gone on a faith journey that just says, man, over and over as I read Old Testament provision for for, uh, the the widow and the foreigner and the orphan, and, and as I read through the sacrificial system, as I read through Jesus, and when I read through people looking back on the life of Jesus in the letters, I, it's just confirmed in my heart what God had already written there. Think about the topic of death for a moment. Death is everywhere in the animal kingdom. We're right now making our way through planet Earth 2. It's just a documentary series, just seeing all of God's just incredible uh, creation. And for those who just say we're simply more evolved animals, here's a question. Why is it that humans feel such outrage and indignation at death? We had two rats living with us. They were in a cage. There's probably others that live with us that we don't know about. I don't want to think about those. Now, mind you, this has happened several occasions, but when one of the rats died, these rats had been together for a couple years. I don't remember how long rats live. But when one of the rats died, you know what the roommate did? It went on doing rat-like things. It took a jog on the wheel. It went up and down. It ate itself. It kind of cleaned itself. It just went on with life. No sadness, no ceremony, no service, no moping. It was just a rat. Its roommate died. Oh, well. When you watch two gazelle running around and the lion finally gets one and eats one, sometimes in the shot right behind, the gazelle just goes back to eating. No outrage, no indignation, right? Part of my role as a pastor is I get the privilege, and I say that in all seriousness, I get the privilege of walking through people with death. 
And I get to go to the bedside of people who are in the final stages of death. And I get to perform funeral services and memorials for people as we think about and talk about and honor the person's life and celebrate the hope we have in Christ. I can tell you right now from firsthand experience, there's outrage and indignation at death. Why is this happening? There's so many pointers to this. Let me go back to colossal truth for a moment. What I want to do, these are already in your notes. I took the work out of notes for you. I feel like you needed a break. Some of you went to the beach yesterday probably, and you're not good at writing, so I just thought I'd take that away from you. Um, let, me walk through, let me walk through seven colossal truths that Paul has already written in Romans, and you don't need to write them down because they'll be there. But number one is this, that all people have a knowledge of God. We saw this in Romans 1. What can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. Although they knew God, it says in Romans 21, they didn't worship him as God. Number two is that all people have rejected God. 121 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me keep going. All people are guilty before God. This first segment is called ruin, and we just looked at ruin for a while, and Romans didn't paint a very uh, flattering picture for us, did it? Described people as sinful and shameful and evil and senseless and faithless and heartless and ruthless. And in Romans 3.10, it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ouch, Paul. Number four, all people are condemned for rejecting God. That every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Number five is that all people are provided the way of salvation through faith in Jesus. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, that means shown, apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Finally, number six and seven. Number six says this. All people are lost apart from Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that a transaction goes on. Those who go from death to life. Those who go from unbelief to belief. And finally, number seven, all Christians are to make known the gospel to all people. And I have in here Romans 10, which we're going to look a little bit more carefully at later. But this is called the Great Commission. This is the idea around the Great Commission. Jesus gives this assignment near the end of his life. And here it is, uh, several decades later, and Paul is instructing the church, saying exactly the same thing that we are called to go and bear witness to this life-saving message. 
Now, I want you to know, on, on Wednesday, I had spent a bunch of time studying. I had my Bible open. I was reading Romans and soaking in it and just praying for all of you and just sort of thinking, God, what do you want shared? And I had just sort of finalized this list, just thinking about why is the Great Commission important? Why did Paul go do these things we're going to go look at in the Bible today? Um, and and I, I just sort of recapped some of these things. Now, after soaking on all of this, I went home that night and I read an article and this title grabbed my attention. Heartsick boy asks if atheist dad is in heaven. Now I was just studying the apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Catch this. And this exchange took place at St. Paul of the Cross Parish on the outskirts of Rome. So here I am reading a letter to the Romans that Paul wrote from way long ago, and real time, this week, on the outskirts of Rome, at St. Paul's church, this exchange takes place. You can see why it piqued my interest. Pope Francis, when the boy came and whispered this question in his ear, said, can I share our conversation with the rest of the boys and girls who were gathered for a Q&A time? And the little boy, whose name was Emmanuel, said, yes, you may. He said, that man, meaning his father, did not have the gift of faith, wasn't a believer. But he had his children baptized, because he had had all four of his kids baptized, the boy shared. He has a good heart. Then Pope Francis asked the young girls and boys in the audience if they thought God would abandon a father like Emmanuel's, who was a good man. To which the children all shouted back, no. There, Emmanuel, that is your answer, the Pope said. According to the translation provided by the Catholic News Service, God surely was proud of your father because it's easier for a believer to baptize your children than to baptize them when you are not a believer. Surely this pleased God very much. Now I bring this story up not to injure you if you have a Catholic background, not to slam Pope Francis. Salvation is God's business. I really, it's a really accurate answer to tell everyone. You need to take it up with God, uh, your heart before God. But God hasn't left us with an answer to that. And the answer Pope Francis gives is found wanting. Humble repentance and heartfelt trust in Jesus is the only way to God. Paul didn't leave wiggle room. And Paul agrees with the rest of Scripture that doesn't leave wiggle room for this. Paul's motivated to do what he does because he believes that people are desperately in need of the message that he's preaching. In fact, he thinks that eternity is at stake by what he is up to. So today begins sort of the the final descent. You've been on a long flight and they say we've begun our final descent. You're like, whew, yay. Paul's going to take his final descent, but... Final descent doesn't mean you're on the ground in five minutes, right? They're still like, they're like, we're 45 minutes out. And it's like, oh man. Paul's begun his final descent. He's closing the letter now, but we still have about a chapter and a half to go. Here's what he's going to do. Today we're going to look back on some of Paul's ministry. He's going to show kind of why that matters to the Romans that he's writing to. Um, 
Next week, we're going to look ahead to some future travel plans. He kind of closes almost all of 16 is this greeting to all the teammates that he has uh, along the journey. Romans 15, starting in verse 14. I'm going to just read the text in the entirety, and then we'll kind of go back and, and look at bits and pieces of it as we go. So Romans 15, 14, follow along with me. It says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of the signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah, those who have never been told will, will, of him will see, those who have never heard will understand." The Bible begins showing us that God is a creator. Romans begins by saying, don't worship what you do see in all of creation. Worship what you can infer that is unseen, that's behind all this incredible creation. But God isn't done when he's created the earth and the universe. God is also creating a large multi-ethnic family called the church. And Romans lays this out in incredible detail. And outside of Jesus Christ and uh, clearly just the work of the Holy Spirit, the individual that influenced the growth of the church more than any other human being was Paul. God used Paul in incredible ways. Now God doesn't need us in the creation of his church any more than you need a four-year-old to help you bake a cake, right? If you invite a four-year-old to help you bake a cake, it's not because you are deprived of extra hands. Why do you invite a four-year-old to help you into the baking process? Relationship, right? You want to instruct. You want to bring along. You want to be close to. You want to do a shared thing. You want to create together. Parents, grandparents, isn't there a great joy in building something with your, with your little guy or gal? Man, you just sit there and just go, well, that was so fun to do that together. Could have done it alone. That's, that's God and the church. He doesn't need us. He could have built Rome, uh, could have built the church in an instant, unlike the way Rome was built. He didn't. He chose to do it slowly over time. Paul was so effective in his work that we would be fools not to study the source of his success. Why was Paul so effective? Why was this guy, a single guy, just individually able to create so much change? What characterized Paul's ministry? Let me give you a few things. Again, I wrote them down. I felt bad for you. I know you're tired. Number one is that it was gospel-centered. He was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. I was a brand new youth pastor at a church, and I was challenged very early on by 
uh, someone that they said, you know, you should really only preach Christ and him crucified. And anything else that you teach is superfluous and unneeded. And I challenged the, 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 the challenger a little bit because I felt like he was sort of just parroting something um, that he had heard or maybe read a verse in Scripture and thought, yeah, that's right, and hadn't sort of worked through the, the implications of it. So I said, okay, you're the youth pastor. You are called to teach roughly, I don't know, 52 weeks of the year on a Sunday. And there's 52 more midweek Bible studies. And then thrown into that are some camps and retreats. What does it mean to simply preach Christ and Him crucified? And this individual was somewhat stumped. And it was a very friendly exchange, but... But I said, you know, we, don't, we aren't just called to tell the old, old story over and over and over. Life, death, burial, resurrection. Life, death, burial, resurrection. Now, there are four gospels, four accounts written in the New Testament that lay out the life of Jesus. But even those, they don't center just on quick facts. Christ and him crucified. There's a whole bunch written in the scriptures offered to us to say this. The gospel has implication for all of life. How does the gospel have implication for the rest of life? That's what much of the New Testament letters are about, aren't they? They're looking back on the events of Jesus' life, Christ and him crucified, but they, they massage it into the rest of life. This person wasn't really thinking through uh, what it meant to, to teach but I love the heart of saying, let's keep it focused on Jesus. Let's keep it focused on central issues. And that's what Paul has certainly proven to do. The good news isn't just good and powerful at the moment of conversion. It informs and empowers us. Think of a brand new baby taking their first breath of air. That's a powerful moment. But that air, is that one gulp isn't enough for the rest of life, right? You continue to breathe it. It sustains you. It empowers you. You breathe it every day. That's the message of the gospel. You don't just have it be powerful and effective good news for you at the moment of conversion. There's new life. I can exist outside the womb. But then it empowers you and sustains you. I mean, we could just go on and on. In fact, I'd encourage you as a community group to kind of think through the implications of this. But let me just show you two very quickly. The gospel has huge implications for our marriages. Sometimes married partners get into uh, locking horns with each other. And if you get down a few levels, what's happening is this. You've done something wrong. You've wronged me. And so I need to punish you for that. I'm going to punish you for that by withholding something. I'm going to punish you for that by yelling. I'm going to uh, punish you by it for whatever reason. And so spouses who are seeking to punish each other, don't have an understanding of the gospel. What happens on the cross? Jesus already paid the fine for the wrongdoing. Jesus has justice in his hands and in mind, and he will take care of it. He does not overlook justice. It is not our role, husband, wife, to exact just, justice and punishment on our spouse. That's the beauty of the gospel. Now, does that take away the pain, the hurt, the results? Of course not. But we bring that to Christ. We bring the punishment that was paid to our own sin. And as we've been forgiven much and we stay in tune with all that we've been forgiven, it's easy for us to turn and, by the power of the Holy Spirit, forgive others. How about in your striving for holiness? You know intrinsically you should do some things. 
you know intrinsically you should not do some things. The gospel has massive bearing on this. Because if we're ever striving to do these things, to avoid the wrath of God or to earn his favor, we don't understand the gospel, right? We need the gospel preached to ourselves in that moment. That's already settled. You are his child in every way, shape, and form. The inheritance is not lost on you. You are not striving to win his favor. You are not striving to avoid his wrath. That is settled and done once for all. That's justification. Instead, you're the little son looking to mimic the father. Yesterday, I was, I was watching my four-year-old, and she was sitting exactly like me. She had, she had her hand like this, and she was kind of looking at me, and Tegan, my 14-year-old, was sort of coaching her to get it exactly right. And then we played this little game where I said, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and mimic you. You do a pose. And so she goes like this. And she puts two fingers up on her hand. And I didn't see the second finger. So I put one finger up on my second hand. And Everly's a black and white girl. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> Daddy, yeah, she had to, I had to get the second finger up. What's going on in that exchange? It's this beautiful picture of your kids just wanting to emulate you. She wasn't emulating me so I wouldn't get after her for something. She wasn't emulating me to avoid a wrath later on in the day. She was emulating me because she loved me. And that's the picture of holiness, that, that we grow in, in mimicking our beloved Heavenly Father. On and on it goes. That's just marriage and holiness. We could, we could take all kinds of things. Paul focused on evangelism, and yet here he is celebrating the work of the Spirit in their lives. If it was just preach, preach a, a gospel message that, that contains the life, burial, resurrection of Jesus and to repent, he wouldn't get into what he says here where he calls out the work of the Spirit, that they're full of goodness, that they possess this knowledge that, hey, you're able to teach one another. And then he actually goes on to, to make sure he doesn't sound like an overlord, you know, coming down on them. He says, look, I had to write really pointedly to, to you on, on certain topics, uh, but it was done out of, out of love. So you see the encouragement, the idea that he wants to spur them on. Secondly, it's God glorifying. Paul's ministry was God glorifying. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. This isn't Paul bragging in his ability. He's bragging on that which is done through him in Christ. It turns the spotlight on God's activity. It is really good to assess your work. It's good to assess your ministry. It's good to assess how you're parenting, how you're, how you're doing relationships. It's good to assess these things, not to puff yourself up, but to look for the activity of God and to make adjustments and celebrate what God is accomplishing in and through you. Last week, I had the joy of preaching across town in Campbell to Living Hope Church, and I shared some things about you here at Neighborhood. And as I shared some of the great storylines that God is up to here at Neighborhood Bible Church, it was really clear, even as the words came out of my mouth, and I said this openly, that the greatest things going on at this church are the results of very imperfect saints seeking to be faithful stewards of what God's given to us and not the strategic thought of the leadership, not the dynamic workings of some super-Christian that we have in our midst. It's just faithful Christians, and what we do is we look back over time and we say, wow, God, you're accomplishing much in our midst, 
And no one can take credit for it except just to give glory to you. Personal stories are great so long as God is the hero of each and every one. When you read Paul, when you look at Paul, how did he minister? He reasoned, he argued, he instructed, he wrote, he philosophized, he shared personal stories. He did all of that regularly according to his audience. And he's an incredible example of one who does that so that God would be glorified. He does that with an end to say, forget about Paul at the end and magnify Jesus Christ. Let me show you number three. Number three is that Paul's work outlasted all the others in ancient Rome because it was God-powered. You notice the Trinity in our passage today, don't you? Verse 15, the grace was given by God. Verse 17, it's, uh, the, the ministry is done in the Son. And verse 19, it's powered by the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God at work. God powerfully working and moving through Paul. Now, Paul was given supernatural signs by the Holy Spirit. We see this really clearly that God accompanies the message with some supernatural signs. You can read about some pretty spectacular things that go on in the ministry and life of Paul. It was to lend credence to what he was saying. There's a couple instances we have recorded where they turned their worship toward Paul. What did Paul do? Stop it! And I'm a man just like anyone else. This is God working through me. Don't you dare fall down and worship me. In 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he says this. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power. And here's what Paul surmises the reason was as to why he came with fear and trembling and not great speech. He says this, so that your faith may rest uh, not on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So that your faith wouldn't rest on some spectacular Christian leader, but rather on the power of God. God doesn't just simply send us the truth. He sends us the living word, Jesus Christ. God doesn't just give the message. He gives the message through messengers. There is so much power in seeing truth principles actually lived out. This is God's ideal for the family. Parents, whether you like it or not, you bear witness to God to your children. Humbling, sobering, and exhilarating thought, depending on the day. They are looking at you to see, I know mom and dad says don't lie, but what does that look like when you're in a tough situation? It looks like lying would be the easiest way out. I know mom and dad says to be patient, but how does that flesh out when it's really stressful? So God sends not just a message, but a messenger. It's one thing to hear the truth, another thing to see it lived out. How about number four? We can see that Paul's ministry was God-planned. He makes it his ambition to preach not where Christ has already been named, uh, but rather to boldly go where no one has preached before. That's the mission Paul was given. That was his assignment. From a few messages ago, you could say Paul swam in his lane. He knew what his lane assignment was, and he just kept going after it and kept going after it. From Romans 1, 
His introduction to this letter, he says, Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. We would look at this today and call this frontier missions. These are people who kind of paratroop into a spot that no one's preached the gospel before, and they go and they boldly preach the gospel. We're going to get to hear from some missionaries uh, next month, and I can't wait for you to hear about them. But um, this is still just such an important calling. And I would challenge you, old, middle, and young alike, God, do you have an assignment for me? Am I restless here in Silicon Valley because you have a call for me to go to Frontier Missions? I keep preaching to those who have already heard and already have a, a foundation. Maybe you're calling me to go and do that. So after this, these four things that kind of show us what is ministry like, look at this sort of modest summary that Paul gives of 10 years or so of preaching and roughly 10,000 miles. Remember, air travel wasn't around yet, right? 10,000 miles. Romans 15, 19, he says that from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What a great thing to be able to say at the end of your life, nearing the end of your life. I fulfilled my mission. Now, if you were like me, and as a kid, maybe as an adult, you sort of glanced through the maps to entertain yourself when the preacher got boring. That was what I did. You'll know that none of Paul's journey was very straight, right? It just sort of went in these crazy lines. I would take my line, my finger, and sort of follow the red line, because the red line was his first missionary journey, and then the purple line that was dotted was his second missionary journey. Now, I've come to realize why that was so. It's, it's hard to keep neat, organized travel plans when you're a marked man, right? When you read the story of, of, of Paul, he was often chased out of places because they so hated his message. And instead of giving up, he swam in his lane. He kept faithful. He endured. And God used him to help build the church. I want to close with these thoughts. You might be thinking... Okay, that's great. That was Paul. Paul's a very unique individual in world history. I would agree with that. And in fact, as you read the scriptures, you have to be careful not to just disregard anything personal that went on with Paul as unmeaningful. God left it in the scriptures for a reason. But you also don't just put it on like a coat and say, well, Paul had travel plans to go to Spain through Italy, so I better book a vacation and go make my own plans because it's biblical, right? What am I to do? Yes, it's a cruise, and I'm not preaching the gospel, but let's not get into details. So that was Paul. What about us? Let me give you three things to kind of close with. Number one is that God is still building his church and looking for laborers. Again, God could have built the church in a day. He didn't. He built it like Rome, day by day, brick by brick. Here's the promise. The church is going to last a lot longer than Rome. The work we do in building the church is going to last forever. It matters. By the way, here's the huge sigh to this, is we don't work for the Lord, the Lord works for us. This is taking the gospel and applying it to evangelism, right? Sometimes people get that message wrong. It's never been about us serving God as if he needs something. It's about God serving us because we need everything. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. We just sang the truth of this. Our God is a lamb-like lion who fights our battles. 
Our God is a lion-like lamb who is meek and merciful and unscary to come and draw close to. And our God is not seeking our help. Our God is seeking trust. So God is still looking for laborers, but not like a help-wanted sign. He wants to invite you in to co-create, to build the church with him. Number two is this. The Great Commission still matters. The Great Commission still matters. Next time someone says, that's not needed anymore by Christians, ask them, do you believe that biblically or is that some other source? How can you show that to me? Those who would say it's wrong to force your ideas or, or it's immoral to try to spread Christianity, ask them, do you believe in the Bible? I do believe in the Bible. Can you show me that from Scripture where you get that? Because I don't see that. We love this verse because it's full of hope. Romans ten thirteen. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a great verse. But we need to keep reading. Look at this. This is what it goes on to say. How will they call on him who, they, who have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? When you kind of work your way back to whoever calls on the Lord will be saved, when you work your way back to salvation, here's what you see. All of this is God's work except for one activity. Who sends? God. Who gives the message? God. Who causes belief? God. Who saves? God. Who preaches? Us. The only breakdown in this is the human agents not opening their mouth, not living their lives. Let me give you one more. Number three is that every Christian is called to complete the mission. If you've believed the lie of the enemy that you're just an ordinary Christian, I'm here to expose the truth. There are no ordinary Christians. Any more than there is an ordinary right ventricle to your heart system or an ordinary left kneecap. As every part of your body plays a vital role, whether you understand it, whether we've caught up to the understanding of how God wired us or not yet, there is no normal Christian. There is no regular Christian. There is no unnecessary Christian. Evangelism is incarnational. That means that when you disperse from here today in a couple of minutes, you are going into cubicles and classrooms and homes and places that the whole of us, the church, can't go. You are invited into there. And you are getting invited into a person's life when you befriend them and they get to see a life that's been rearranged by the gospel. Every Christian is called to do this. Paul knew that his call was to Gentiles, and he covered a lot of ground. What about you? What's your lane? What is the burden God has put on your hearts? Here's a, here's a way to test it. What lyrics make you cry or give you the goosebumps? Is there a people group? Is there a, 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 a certain kind of, of person that God keeps drawing you to? God, we need your help. We freely confess that. In fact, we celebrate that and sing about that. Would you rid us of apathetic hearts? Would you rid us of prideful hearts as if it were up to us? Would you rid us of punishing hearts, God, that take anger out on people who don't 
believe or see as we do. God, just now as we sing about your pursuing love for us, I pray it wouldn't stop with us, God. I pray that we'd be a conduit, that as we sing and celebrate all that you did to chase us down, to reveal yourself to us, to not force us or coerce us into bending the knee, but to invite us to do the best thing possible, which is to bend the knee and make you Lord and get off the throne ourselves. God, that we would act in similar ways, that we'd have a similar heart to people in our world. Amen.